Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So the passage that I'm reading from today, I'm just going to get stuck right, right into it. It's a passage of the Good Shepherd, and we find it in John chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 18, and the verses will appear on the slide behind me. But it says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees still did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me shall be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and he scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So recently I had a scenario where I was walking home and someone stopped me on the way home. And when someone stops you on the way home, it's like, this could be great or this could be really annoying. Um, And I looked at this person's face and I was like, oh, actually, I think I recognise you. Um, There was something sort of vaguely familiar about the way that they looked. And normally I'm really honoured with recognising people. I'm usually the person that makes the awkward blunder of being like, oh, we know each other. And the other person's like, I don't think we do. Um, But I just, I could not place who this person was and I couldn't recognise them. And so I thought, maybe, is it personal life? Is it church life? Is it work? And then Sue said, oh, you're Alicia from Barnabas, aren't you? So I was like, right, so it's work. But then I was like, is this a professional or is it a client? I'm not really sure. But he kind of noticed my confusion. I tried to hide it. Um, So he started telling me who he was and how how we knew each other. And so he said he came to our service when he was homeless. He told me about the issues that he brought up with us, how we helped him get into temporary accommodation, but then we sort of lost touch along the way. And he now tells me that he's settled in a flat and he's looking to get back into work. So it was a really amazing sort of chance interaction. And it was really wonderful to bump into him, but I completely did not recognise him at first. It was only when he started alluding to things that we'd done together, or things that I already knew about but had forgotten about, that the recognition started flooding back. I visually also realised that I did remember his face and recognise where it was from. And so as we read this passage, Jesus is kind of doing the same. He's being very specific about the imagery that he's using to speak to the Pharisees with. And he's using a lot of Old Testament references. So the Pharisees are the scholars, the religious leaders. They know the Old Testament. And Jesus is Jesus, so he also knows the Old Testament. And so it should be this common ground for them both. 
Jesus uses references to the Old Testament to say, I'm telling you who I am, and you should know because we share this knowledge and this history together. He reveals what should be familiar and recognising to them, <coughs> but they just, they just don't see that. And so these Old Testament references, they, pop, they crop up a lot through the Old Testament, but one that's really poignant is if we go back to Psalms, and Psalms 23 says this, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and this staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So Jesus is saying, you know God as your shepherd. I am that shepherd. Or alternatively, in Ezekiel, it's a book of um, prophecies. In chapter 34, Ezekiel prophetically pronounces that the Lord will be Israel's shepherd. Then the prophecy goes on to reprimand false teachers or false shepherds. And those are religious leaders who are not taking care of the people, not taking care of their sheep. And so Ezekiel then goes to say, um, and, and then goes to prophesy that the Lord says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending to the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As shepherds look after a scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. And then it goes on to say, then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. So Jesus knows that the Pharisees knows these bits of the Old Testament and he explicitly draws from them to say that he is God. He is fulfilling that, prophet, prophet, filling that promise of the prophecy of a good shepherd. He is the shepherd. He will protect and he will remove the power of salvation away from those self-proclaiming religious leaders and place it in himself. He is the true shepherd. And there's lots and lots of instances in the Old Testament that refer to God as a shepherd guiding his flock So Jesus is starkly saying to the Pharisees, the God you are waiting for, the one who will shepherd his people and protect them, is here, it's me. But even though Jesus offered these common connections, this common knowledge about God, the Pharisees didn't put the pieces together, or they just refused to see that because of their own pride. So my first question for you is, as we go into this, is where are we blocking out the familiarity of God? Are we blocking out seeing where he's actually working in our lives, like the Pharisees were doing And we actually have a much richer picture of this as well, because we have the New Testament to look at and to read. And a whole lot of time since these events happened to give a richer picture of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. So if you're struggling to see where God is in your life, start to take a look in the scriptures, a place like John to see who Jesus is. Or if you know what the connections are, let Jesus join up those dots with you and show where he is in your life. That's hopefully what we're going to do a little bit tonight as well. So not only was Jesus this promised shepherd that was to come, he was also the good shepherd. But what exactly does that mean? It doesn't just mean that he was good at herding sheep, but we know Jesus was God, so he probably was good at herding sheep. But Jesus often spoke figuratively to help both the religious leaders and people listening to understand what he meant um, and to say it in a very clear way. And so shepherding is a role that would have been really familiar to people at the time. They would have understood the terminology and the process that he was unpacking. But for those of us, as far as I know, I don't think we have any sheep farmers, but please correct me. So we might not actually understand the process that Jesus is talking about. And so the passage revolves around how the sheep go into their sheep pen and who they follow in to do that. 
So in this time, sheep pens were caves or sheds or open areas surrounded by a wall, and the shepherd would often lay across the doorway of the fold or of the pen to protect the sheep, to stop them from wandering off or to stop anything unwanted from coming in. So the shepherd would quite literally lay down his life for his sheep. And so when I was reading this, I was actually thinking, how rare is it that someone actually puts their life on the line for their job? In my job, I don't think I do that, and I don't think I would do that. I love my job, and I put a lot of effort into it, but if my life came into the mix of it, I don't think I would put my life on the line for it. I don't think my husband would want me to either. Equally, if my husband was up a ladder doing some joinery and had to jump off a ladder to save someone and died, I would be annoyed. Um, and I don't think that's an unfair expectation. I'd be annoyed at Jake. Um, and even a shepherd might not sacrifice his life for his sheep. If a wolf came running, he might not lay down and protect his sheep. But Jesus, the good shepherd, says that he would. Jesus does it because we're not merely his job, but we are who he came for. We are his love. And Jesus actually lays this out really clearly verse by verse. I'm just going to go through that now. So verse 3, it says, The sheep recognise his voice. He causes his own sheep by name. So Jesus knows us in our entirety. He knows us from before we were born, and he'll know us into eternity as well. So when we follow Jesus, we don't follow a leader who leads for the sake of power. We follow someone who knows us individually. We also recognise him. We recognise him because we might know him, because we've chosen to know him, or because we are in search for some goodness in a world that is broken. Like the Pharisees that knew of this prophesied shepherd to come, they did not see Jesus for this, but they were looking for that saviour. Verse 4, he walks ahead of them. They follow because they know his voice. So Jesus walks ahead of us. There's nothing that we go through that he's not already done before, and we can follow his voice and know that we are protected even from death. That does not mean that we will go, not go through things that are difficult and that are hard and that we won't go through death but that Jesus will lead us through whatever we go through, and there is nothing that can take us through death except Jesus. Verse 7, I am the gate. Jesus is very clear that he is the only way we can reach this protection and salvation of our soul. But he doesn't force us through the gate. He leads us through, but it is our choice and our action to enter through the gates. Verse 9, he repeats again. He says, I am the gate. Those who come through me will be saved. So he's not luring us into a trap. He's not luring us into something against our own will. He is inviting us into spiritual protection, a relationship where we can be known by God and an opportunity to spend eternity with God. He's inviting us into an opportunity to be saved from what the world has to offer. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. So it says what it says. Jesus' love is so deep that he goes as far to sacrifice his life for it. Jesus' love and plan to bring us into a sheep pen and even go through and even go through and beyond death for us. <coughs> Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. He says that again. Verse 15, I sacrifice my life for my sheep. Again, Jesus is nailing it on the head for what his love is about to do. Jesus is about to die on the cross for all of us. Verse 16, I have other sheep that I must bring also. So in this verse, Jesus, Jesus is specifically addressing the fact that his sacrifice is not only for the Jews. This changes what it has been up until this point, that until Jesus, Jews were the only ones who thought to have been able to approach God through practices of sacrifice. Jesus turns that on his head to say that his love and sacrifice is for everyone. And verse 17 to 18, that this is not a sacrifice of force. Jesus' death on the cross was obedience to his father, but he still chose to do this in order to pay for our sins. 
So these verses really just highlight how deep and how far Jesus' love goes. But it's important to know as well that in that society, shepherds were really low in status. So Jesus glorified himself, not through status and you know, a, high, a high job, but through submission to his people. The shepherd's only role in society was to care for the sheep. He was committed to them. There was no recognition or special treatment in that job. Yet the shepherd would quite literally ensure complete safety for every single one of his sheep. There's a book that I've read recently called Gentle and Lowly, and it's by Dane Ortland. And the book not only talks about what Jesus has done for us, but what that actually means for how Jesus loves us. And so I'm going to read out something that is written, because I just think it really accurately describes what we've just been going through about how Jesus loves us. So it says, Jesus did not retain something for himself. The way we tend to do when we seek to love others sacrificially. He does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsaken. <coughs> we love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. And so Jesus' love didn't only hold significance because he was a great man that God sent. Jesus offered a different Jesus was different because he was fully human, he was fully Jesus, but he was also fully God. And that's really essential for us to understand in our faith, because it means that God didn't just send some random human that he just happened to like. He sacrificed himself. And Jesus is making it really clear in this passage. If you notice in some of the verses I mentioned previously, he says, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd. So that phrase, I am, is really, really culturally important. A guy called Moses from the Old Testament met with God in the form of a burning bush. And when Moses asked who, who are you? God, through the burning bush, said, I am who I am. Can you imagine seeing a burning bush and you ask who it is and the guy just says, I am who I am. But actually, this is exactly who God needed to say that he was. In a time, Moses and the Israelites were surrounded by Egyptians who worshipped multiple different <coughs> deities for different things. You'd have a different God for this thing, a different God for that thing, and for different purposes. Or even within their own culture where they worshipped one God, but it was not a God that dwelled among them or that they were able to meet with personally God showed up to Moses and said I am God said I am who I am he is everything he is God he is here with Moses he is self-sufficient and he is a sustaining God and so since then the words I am sometimes translated into Hebrew as Yahweh became the name of God and it was so holy and sacred that Jews were really careful never to say it out loud and never to fully write it out but Jesus, knowing what he was doing, makes seven I am statements in the book of John, knowing full well that this would be controversial and considered really blasphemous by some. But he is making no mistake to say, I am who I am. Jesus is wanting to say, I am God. And in the last couple of verses, 17 and 18, he hammers at home even further. He says, I have authority to lay down my life and authority to take it up again. God is the only one who has authority not only to take your life, but to raise it up again as well. So these verses not only say about who Jesus was as a man, but more deeply who Jesus is as God and how that has significance in eternity. So what does it mean to be loved by Jesus? And after looking at this, I think, again, Dane Ortland has a way of summing it up that just nails it on the head. And he says, Christ loved his own all the way through to death itself. What must that mean for you? It means, first, that your future is secure. If you are his, heaven and relief is coming. And it means, second, that he will love you to the end. 
Not only is your future secure on the basis of his death, your present is secure, proven in his heart. He will love you to the end because he cannot bear to do otherwise. And I think as well, to summarise a really biblical understanding of exactly what that love looks like, I'm going to take us back to Psalm 123 and go over it again. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and this staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So do we see in our lives how Jesus is loving us? Do we recognise his voice? Do we see how he is good in his love? Have we walked through the gate to experience this? But in this passage, Jesus doesn't only talk about himself. He talks very clearly about wolves, thieves and shepherds who who are just hired. So these thieves, wolves or hired hands in the passage describe anyone or anything that tries to get in the way of Jesus being the only way to God. They are also people who try to scatter God's people and disrupt their safety. Or they are people who, in the face of danger, fail to save or protect their sheep. They are deceptive, destructive and unreliable for our safety in eternity. And although to describe someone as a thief or a wolf is quite a strong word, Jesus was actually trying to imply that this is what the religious leaders were doing. They were used to being the ones to being followed by everyone and had that way to God. And Jesus came to upturn that and said, and said that to anyone who tried to deny Jesus as the way to God and that his salvation was the way to God was false and, a thief, and was a thief of truth when they tried to deny that. So thief can be anyone or anything that leads us away from Jesus. Anything that leads us into false truths about how to get to God or how to be saved. This is what it means when, the enemy, when it says that the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. These people or things steal us from a life away with Jesus and try to destroy our opportunity to be in a relationship with God. So these things that try to steal us away might actually be things that we've just become really used to around us. There's lots of things in society that point us away from God and point elsewhere, or even point to ourselves as the means of salvation. And society can offer us so many false truths. False truth about how we should see ourselves, False truth about how we should act amongst ourselves and amongst others. Even false truths about freedom. So I've mentioned Psalm 23 a lot because I think it really accurately describes the shepherd that Jesus is. But I want to hone in on verse 4 where it says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and, they staff, your, rod and your staff, they comfort me. So again, another shepherding term that we need to understand to get the full picture so often shepherds would go out into the field with two things. It'd be a rob, which was like a short club-like stick thing, and a staff, which was a taller thing, sometimes called a crook. Um, and it was a much taller stick with a hook on the end. So the rod would be used to fight off the wild animals, but also to prod the sheep into safety of the pen at night, or to prod them into the field in the day. So if the shepherd came across a stubborn sheep that was wandering away from the group or resisting to go into the safety of the pen, the crook would be used to gently but firmly ensure that they were pushed into the right way. So God's saying his rod and his staff are there to comfort us. We are able to trust that where God is sending us is to be with him and that actually sometimes we're actually silly enough to resist that. And this can feel exactly the opposite of what society is telling us is good for us. Not only does God's protection offer us comfort, 
he is bringing us into his enclosure as well. And we've been taught that to live under someone else's means or, and not our own individualised decisions is to not have freedom. But that is not true for God. To live with and in God, to be guided into his pen with him, is freedom. So when I was younger, uh, my family moved to Aberdeen and we moved into a house that was next to a cow field. And where we sat at the dining room table, you could see the gate to the cow field. And we were discussing, literally at this time, we were discussing, oh, wouldn't it be really funny if the cows escaped from the field and came into our garden? And as I looked up, I saw, I was like, those cows are walking down the road. They're not in the field. And one after another, they were coming out and they trampled our neighbour's garden, who had a very lovely manicured garden. They didn't step into ours, which was just a bit overgrown and a bit weedy. But then they started heading down towards the road, and the road at the bottom of this lane was like a 60-mile-an-hour road. So we called the farmer and were like, you need to come and sort out your cows. The farmer was like, whatever you do, don't let them go into the road. And we were like, I don't really know what we can do to stop that. But anyways, the, the cows were fine in the end. They did go into the road, but thankfully it was quiet, so they didn't get hit or anything like that. But the cows saw the, the open gate and thought, great, freedom, not realising they were walking into a road where they are going to get hit by a car. Or a similar story, but in a human sense. When my little sister was four, you might have heard me tell this story before, there was, for some reason, a cup full of washing up liquid on the side. It was green washing up liquid. She said to my mum, Mum, I want, I want apple juice. Mum was like, no, have some water. My sister was like, no, Mum, I want that apple juice. And my mum was like, you can't have that. It's not apple juice. And my sister thought my mum was being a bit of an idiot, so drunk the washing up liquid and started vomiting everywhere. And my mum, with her rules, had been offering my sister a freedom from vomiting, and my sister hadn't taken it. And so sometimes when God speaks to us and asks us to do things like this, we act in exactly the same way. We don't realise what we are being protected from. And I'm not talking about sheltering ourselves from the world in a way where we don't interact or we don't engage with anything in the world. Because actually there are some good things out there and it's good to be aware and engaging with what's going on around us and engaging with people that are around us as well. But what we don't actually realise which is the truth, which is that we are being protected from a reality or a life without God. So if we chase after things that are outside the pen and walk away from what God has for us, all that society can offer is a life without God. It can offer us momentary happiness. It can offer us momentary gain in life. But it cannot offer us anything that secures us in eternity. And it cannot offer us anything that secures a relationship with God. We are being protected from a reality of a life without God. But with God, with Jesus, we have the freedom to not have to be good enough and not have to earn our righteousness. Whereas in society, we have to achieve status and search for who we are. We have, with God, we have freedom of complete assurance and value in ourselves and our Father. <coughs> Jesus covers us in this perfection, despite what society tells us we have to do to be perfect. We have freedom from an intensely dissatisfying world. We can be fully satisfied in God. And it's not just freedom from, it's freedom to as well. It's freedom to know God in his fullness and freedom to know God in his perfection and know God, the shepherd's love. So when we follow him into the sheep pen, when we let his staff and his rod guide us, we are not entering into our realm of restriction and following religious rules, but into a relationship of freedom. And this paradox means that we are free from internal and external judgment of society. We are free from the thoughts and power of other broken people in humanity. We are only subjects to the thoughts and actions of our shepherd, of our God. And Jesus has shown, he's shown us that this shepherd will lay down his life for us. <coughs> so that to me is not thieving my freedom, that is not killing my liberty, 
And it's not destroying my chance for a fulfilled life, but it's actually giving me life and giving me life to the full. So when we live our life like this, our obedience becomes self-explanatory because we know the kind of God that we serve and the freedom that he has secured for us. We know that to obey, despite circumstances and feelings, is because we know how good it is to be in the pen with Jesus at the gate. And it's really, really hard because we are hardwired to seek validation and to find it quickly in the world around us. And we are the society of quick and fleeting satisfaction. So we need to retrain our hearts and minds to find God and recognise where society will fail to provide that. It's something that takes work and can feel uncomfortable when God is prodding us to do it. So as I come into land and finish the, uh, finish the preach, I want to just bring us back to the passage that we've been looking at in John. John's main aim in his book is for us to see that Jesus is God. And that for us, that means he is the way to God, the way to spiritual salvation and the way to love. And the structure of this book is really interesting as well. In the first chapter, we have a bit of a prologue where John explains that Jesus is God's word come to life. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. And then sort of middle of the first chapter to about end of the 12th, we see John telling us about all the signs that Jesus did and Jesus teaching us about what life would look like with him. And then after that, we see where Jesus starts to prepare for his time to leave, for his time to die. And then we see um, John describe this to us, his death, his resurrection, and then into Acts about him ascending to heaven as well. So John spent a massive chunk of this gospel showing us signs that Jesus is reversing the brokenness of our world. So he's healing a blind man, or he's making someone able to walk again, for example. But where we have our passage is right at the peak of conflict, as Jesus begins to reveal more and more of himself as the ultimate reversal of our brokenness. In the chapters leading up to this, we see some of the disciples deserting Jesus. We see lots of division over who Jesus is, lots of dispute into Jesus' testimony over who he says he is. And so in this passage where he is addressing to the Pharisees, it sits in the context of a real conflict around his claims. So this passage is not a nice and cushy passage where Jesus sits describing his goodness and everyone laps it up and it's all great and hunky-dory. It sits amongst some really dangerous conflict to which Jesus knows the extent of the risk, which is ultimately his death. But as it is reaching its climax, Jesus is giving us his most important information, that he is God. To follow him is to follow God. And to follow him is good. So I want to leave us with some questions of where we might sit with this in our own lives. Do we need to know that Jesus is our good shepherd? Is it something that you've forgotten or replaced with our own imperfect ideas of how love looks? Do we need to go to the scriptures to spend time with God and community around you to find this? And my answer would be yes. There are so many distractions in the world that we have to work to make sure we are focusing on the truth. I encourage you to invest in those friendships that speak this truth and I encourage you to look into the word to find this truth as well. Do you know that the gate is open? Jesus is God and this is what John spent his entire book getting at. So Jesus is offering us a way to God. We just have to follow him through the gate. Do you need to move your eyes and your heart away from the fleeting freedom in society to the eternal freedom in Jesus? This is probably the hardest step to take and the one that I relate to the most. It isn't always easy to remember or to know that Jesus is our true shepherd or to seek that freedom. Because the reality is, is that life gets in the way or society taints what that freedom looks like. But when we seek out God and spend time with him and allow him to work in our lives, we can work together with him to shift our minds away from what we have been told over and over again, which is that society can offer a better freedom than Jesus can. 
So with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can find freedom in coming to know Jesus as our good shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd, we lack nothing. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He refreshes our souls. He guides us along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though we walk through the darkest valley, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil, our cups overflow. Surely your goodness and love will follow us for all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk We look forward to connecting with you. I follow